Well, good morning once again, and a special welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We are so glad that you decided to spend some of your Sunday morning with us here at Northridge. If we haven't met, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm just delighted to be able to bring you a word from the Lord this morning. So this morning, we are continuing our summer sermon series that's entitled Ordinary to Extraordinary, where we are taking the look at the life of someone from the biblical story and the lessons we can learn from their ordinary to extraordinary arc. To set the scene for today's person, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Before we dive in, I'm curious to pull the room. When someone offers you good news or bad news, who in the room likes to hear the good news first? Okay, there are, there are more than I thought, actually. Maybe I'm just a pessimistic person. But So those are the good news people. How about my bad news first people? Who are the bad news first people? Me too. Thank you. Thank you. So today, we are going to actually begin with that. We're going to begin with the latter. We're going to hear some bad news first. By every measurable statistic, the church in North America is dying. According to a 2020 Gallup poll, 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, mosque, or synagogue. That is down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. Considering church attendance, those statistics are actually a lot more bleak. In 1999, only 13% of people said they never attend church. And that number, as of 2022, is up to 31%. And is now the leading statistical category for church attendance in the United States, which means that Never attend church is more common than any other frequency of attending church. In 2019, the Barna Group researched faith trends to consider the most post-Christian cities in America based on 11 factors. I'm just going to name three of those this morning, but you can take a look at that study if you're curious to find out more. Some of those factors are, those they polled, a reluctance to engage in spiritual conversations, an aversion to evangelism, and an erosion of religious beliefs and Christian practice. Now, this study in 2019 named Madison as the 11th most post-Christian city in the country, keeping company with places like Santa Barbara, California, and Seattle, Washington. And if you're curious, Madison was number 17 on that list in 2017, so over two years, went from 17th to 11th on that list, so it's quickly rising into the top 10. The term post-religious or post-Christian was coined by a theologian named Diedrich Bonhoeffer after a period in the 18th century that was known as the Enlightenment. Now, what happened during the Enlightenment was people decided that they were going to try to figure out the meaning of life, and so leading thinkers and philosophers during that time decided that it couldn't be possible that the creator God of the Bible was real. They instead found their meaning and identity in the world. It was believed that if you were a person who was smart or enlightened, that you couldn't possibly be a Christian. Now, this period of time led philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche to write one of the most well-known, infamous quotes about philosophy and religion 
in the modern age. You might not have heard this quote, but you probably heard something like this quote used in our modern time. Nietzsche said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, it's important to note that Nietzsche was a famously atheist person. He didn't believe in the creator God of the Bible or in any cosmic being at all. You see, what Nietzsche did is he looked at the world around him and saw the decline of religious belief and practice as a foundation for morality and humanity. And he noticed, Nietzsche noticed, that that decline would have a profound and negative impact and negative consequences for human existence on earth. And I think based on the statistics that I shared a few seconds ago, we are living in an age and in a place here in Dane County where the nature of human progress and increasingly secular values are having this same profound and negative impact on the culture around us. God is dead, the church is dying, and we are watching it happen right in front of our eyes. How are you feeling about that? Were you prepared for that level of bad news this early on a dreary Sunday morning? Well, by the way of today's character that we're going to study this morning from the Ordinary to Extraordinary series, I want to offer you a bit of hope amidst that bad news. One of the major prophets from the Old Testament is a man named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of the Israelites taken captive to Babylon in 597 approximately BC by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, sacked the city, and destroyed the first temple. Now the Babylonian exile is one of the most formative and impactful periods on the story of the Israelites in the Bible. Ezekiel himself was the son of a priest, and he would later become a priest himself, but not before he received a prophetic call from God in approximately 593 BC. All these dates are argued by scholars, but most believe that Ezekiel was only 13 years old when he received that prophetic call from God to prophesy. So if you do the math from when the time the Israelites were taken captive to Babylon and the time that Ezekiel was called to prophecy, he was only nine years old when he and his family were taken captive from Jerusalem and sent to live in the heart of the Babylonian, the secular Babylonian empire for 70 years. That was the period of exile in Babylon for the Israelites. And so that means if you think about his life, Ezekiel spent the majority of his adult life as the religious minority, as Yahweh worshipers in the middle of a secular empire for his entire life. Now does that maybe sound a little bit familiar to the state that we are living in here as Christians in Dane County? His call to prophecy is found in, this would make sense, the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to start this morning in Ezekiel chapter 2 and then go to verse 3. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Stand up, son of man, said the voice. That's God speaking to Ezekiel. I want to speak with you. The Spirit came into me as he spoke, and he set me on my feet. I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, he said, I am sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. They are a stubborn and a hard-hearted people, but I am sending you to say to them, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or refuse to listen, for remember, they are rebels, at least they will know they've had a prophet among them. As within other prophetic calls in the Old Testament, the Lord comes to Ezekiel in the spirit, gives him very specific vision and very specific instructions. So here, Ezekiel is being called and sent to the nation of Israel, his own people who were captive in Babylon, who, as it says in the scripture, have been stubborn and hard-hearted people. Yet, Ezekiel is called to deliver God's message to them. Continuing in chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Ezekiel, the voice said to me, Son of man, eat what I am giving you. Eat this scroll. Then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. Fill your stomach with this, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the people of Israel and give them my messages. I am not sending you to a foreign people whose language you cannot understand. You see, to me, how and where the prophet Ezekiel was sent sounds wildly familiar to our state of Christianity, where we are in the state of culture, and is very much a call to be a missionary. Ezekiel is called to prophesy to a missionary as his own people. It says in verse 4, I am not sending you to a foreign people. And see, we often think about in our modern age missionaries as people who are called to travel to some far-off place across the globe to reach a foreign people group or a lost people group. In fact, here at Northridge, if you've been around for some time, you might know that we've come alongside and financially supported and perfectly supported two young ladies who are missionaries with global partners in Europe and in Asia. Yet Ezekiel's call was one to stay where he was to speak God's messages to his own people. This is like a call where we live and where we live and work today to deliver God's messages to those people who you interact with on a daily basis, in your family, in your neighborhood, at work, and in all the people that you encounter on a daily basis. You see, if the message of Ezekiel's call to prophecy means anything, that means that we, as God's people, are called to be missionaries, and we're called to be missionaries to our own people right where we are. At the beginning of the message, I shared some negative statistics about the church and about Christianity, both across the country and here locally. In some ways, it's easy to make the correlation between a call to a group of, a missionary calling to a group of lost people. So that makes sense. If people are not Christian, it makes sense that we would be called to reach them with the message of the gospel. But as with other missionary contexts, the call to people is about their soul, but it's also about more than that. You see, of course, the gospel, as we know of Jesus Christ, means that we have hope and assurance in our salvation. But there is a lot more good news with the gospel. You see, we know that Jesus came to earth as a baby, incarnate God, lived a perfect and sinless life, died a criminal's death, on the cross, bearing our sin and shame and paying the price for us to be able to live in freedom and have eternal life. But there are a lot of other promises in the Bible, those that Jesus is going to come again and usher in this eternity that we've been promised with our salvation. Acts 
1, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Revelation 1 all state that Jesus is going to come again in full glory to usher in eternity. And so in many ways, Northridge, we live in some sort of already but not yet state. Christ already came, paid the price for our salvation, yet he's going to come again. So there's a tension of period that we live in as followers of Jesus. Our message that we have to offer to those people in our lives is good news, but it's good news for more than one reason. We have a message of salvation, but we also have a message of hope where we are here in our day-to-day life. Did you catch the imagery in Ezekiel 3 about God asking Ezekiel to eat the scroll? Wasn't that really interesting imagery? Let's take another look at that passage from chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I want to look at that again. The voice said to me, Son of man, eat what I am giving you. Eat this scroll. Then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Fill your stomach with this, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. The scripture says that Ezekiel opened his mouth, ate this, literally ate this scroll, and it tasted as sweet as honey. Now, you may have seen that phrase, as sweet as honey, uh, on some Christian paraphernalia. You might have seen it on a t-shirt you saw on Etsy, or you might have been in a Hobby Lobby and saw it on a canvas you can put in your kitchen or over the fireplace. You see, the sweet as honey message that is utilized for a lot of stuff that we'll see in a daily life here is from Psalm 19, which is believed to have been inspired by Ezekiel's vision in chapter 3. What tasting the scroll and finding it good means, tasting as sweet as honey, is that it means that you've heard the word of the Lord, that you found his message of hope and salvation to be good, and you've internalized it and identified with it, and you believe that it's good, that what you know about Jesus and God at work in your life tastes sweeter than honey. God is saying to Ezekiel in this passage, and I believe is saying to us today, that if you know I'm good, that if you have hope in my message, that you should take this message to the people around you, to those in your life and in your neighborhood and in your family who desperately need hope. Madison and Dane County are really interesting places, I think. Uh, In 2020. 2022, excuse me, livability.com named Madison the best place to live in the country. The latest U.S. News and World Report ranked Madison as number 11 in the country as best places to live and number three in quality of life. And on that same survey, you've probably seen Madison has been named the best place to live in the country. We have an amazing and wonderful church here at Northridge. We have the University of Wisconsin. We have the lakes and the rivers, the farmer's market, great restaurants and culture. Wanakee Middleton schools are some of the best in the state. I love it here. The weather is beautiful. Some, sometimes, I think if you like the change of seasons, you would say it's beautiful quite a bit. And even this morning, we do need a little bit of rain. My wife, Leah, and I love it here, and we feel called and rooted to minister to and in this area for the long term. Yet the thing about Madison is, in this area, is that there's a shadow side that we don't often see amidst those statistics about it being the best place to live. 
In 2013, the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families released what is known as the Race to Equity Report. In this report, the researchers sought to, in their own words, collect, analyze, track, and disseminate data on this kind, of, this kind and degree of racial and ethnic disparities that exist in Dane County. As part of the introduction to the report findings, the, researcher listed, the researchers listed three points of context that are important to the results of that study. Number one, Dane County is often considered one of the best places to live in America. We just heard that. Number two, Dane County is a resource-rich and progressively-minded place. And number three, despite these positive attributes, Dane County also has some of the highest racial disparities in the United States. I would encourage you to read that report yourself. You can find it at racetoequity.net. I'll boil down the report to this. Though Madison and Dane County is one of the best places to live in the country, statistically and relatively speaking, it's harder to be a person of color here than almost anywhere else in the country. I've often noticed, noted this disparity when I hear this statistic, like how could it be the literal best place to live in the country on so many polls that consider quality of life, yet so negative for so many people among us. And I wonder how great would it be to live and work and play and call this place home if it were relatively better for some of us. Progressive is a really funny word, I think, isn't it? In the Race to Equity Report, they note that Dane County is resource-rich and progressively-minded. And I think many people would wear the word progressive as a badge. I think in and of itself, progressive comes from the word progress, which would insinuate that we're making progress. And don't get me wrong and don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. I think there's a lot of good progress that's been made in this country, a tremendous amount actually. We've come so far in gender equality, in voting rights, in civil rights, and a lot of other measures of freedom that we would count towards progress. But I wonder, as we consider this morning's message, when does progress end? How would we reach a goal for equality for all people that they could live in a place of the best place to live? And how exactly would we get there? Do you remember Frederick Nietzsche from earlier in the message? Now, he was an atheist philosopher that he noted in his studies and in his works that equality was actually a uniquely Christian ideal. Now, he himself was against this sort of equality. Nietzsche believed that equality actually devalued life. He was a proponent of what he called the natural drives and desires of people, believing basically, and these are Nietzsche's words and, and not mine, so it's a paraphrase, but Nietzsche believed that some, we're all better off when some people are better off. I think as we consider equality this morning, we know and we have hope with Christ coming again, that true equality is an eschatological reality. I had to drop one big word on you this morning. Eschatological and eschatology just means the study of the end times or the study of the end of the earth. As I mentioned earlier, we believe that this end times is going to be ushered in by the return of Jesus. It says in the book of Revelation, the prophet John writes of our ultimate home, in a place called the New Jerusalem, when we live with Jesus in eternity, in a new heaven, in a new earth. It says in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, Then I, 
that's John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne, that's Jesus said, Look, I am making all things new. And he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. In those end times that the prophet John writes about in the book of Revelation, God promises us in the end no more death, no more dying, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more inequality, no more have and have not. And we, as followers of Jesus, we can rest in that hope. But the thing is, Northridge Church, we are called to be missionaries now. And we live in a place where there is sorrow and crying and pain, even though there has been so much good and so much progress. We found out earlier in this message that God and the church are dying in culture right in front of our eyes. We are living in some sort of already, but not yet. And in many cases, we've eaten the scroll. We know that God's word is good and true, and we have a ton of hope in salvation. That means that it should taste sweet like honey to us. The book of Ezekiel is like other prophetic works in the Bible. How it's laid out is it starts with a call to the prophet. It leads to a pronouncement of like how things are. God will give a message to his people and state, this is what my people or the people are doing that is counter to the way that I want them to live. And in many cases in the prophetic works in the Old Testament, you'll find some sort of pronouncement of doom. That God is saying, this is where we're headed if we don't repent and turn back to me. In all cases, though, in the prophetic works in the Old Testament, God promises and tells us of good and of hope and of an ultimate restoration in him. Ezekiel's prophecy, if you read the book of Ezekiel, is no different than that. Near the end of Ezekiel, in one of the most vivid and powerful and amazing passages in the Old Testament, I think, the Lord carries Ezekiel to what is known as the Valley of the Dry Bones. Here, God shows Ezekiel in a vision, literally as far as he can see, a valley of skeletons, of bones scattered in a dark valley. Drying out, long dead, these bones in the, in the book of Ezekiel represented the nation of Israel, where they were. Divided into two kingdoms, exiled into the Babylonian Empire, and dead, far from God. I'm going to skip ahead to Ezekiel chapter 37, which is where the Valley of Dry Bones passage is, starting in verse 1. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screens as well. 
the Lord took me, took a hold of me, sorry, that's Ezekiel, and I was carried away by the Spirit to the, by the Lord to a, valley, to a valley filled with dry bones, excuse me. He led me all around among the bones and covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together, attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. The skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. I think this is an incredible passage of scripture. God carries Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones, and then he asks him, God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live again? Now, I don't know what Ezekiel was thinking in that vision in that moment, but he did what I would probably do in that same instance, and he deferred to God. He said, God, you know, you know what, can po- what is possible here. You know what can happen. He said, son of, or he said, Lord, you alone know the answer. You see, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. God could have just shown Ezekiel his resurrection of those dry bones. He could have done that in a thought or in a word. But God does something really incredible with the prophet Ezekiel. He tells him to prophesy over the dry bones. It says, Ezekiel says, So I spoke this message just as he told me. And the bones start to rattle. They form together, attach themselves Tendons and muscles come together, and skin is formed over the bones, creating people. Do you think I forgot about the good news? We started off with good news and bad news this morning, and we shared a little bit of bad news. But here is the good news I contend this morning. God can bring anything back to life. But he is asking us, I think, in some cases to prophesy, to speak God's truth over what we think might be dead. Prophecy has a stigma around it, I think, that it's only some wild, grandiose visions. But Ezekiel's story tells us that prophecy is knowing and believing what God already said he was going to do and to speak it out into the world, to the dying church in America, to our neighborhood, to our community, to the world around us so desperately in need of true godly equality and hope, to a place where there is no pain and no more tears and no suffering, that what we might already see as dead and dying as the dry bones in the valleys of our everyday life.
if we believe that God's word is true, if we've actually experienced it in our own lives, that means it should be as sweet as honey to us. This is the first step, I think, in this process. Knowing, believing, and recognizing that God's unique and profound hope is sweeter than honey. But this isn't the end of the passage in the Valley of the Dry Bones. At the end of that passage that I just read, that we just read together, it says the skin formed over their bodies, but the bodies had no life in them. Let's continue in 37, continuing in verse 9. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and a breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. You see, in Ezekiel's vision with God, this entire army of skeletons came to life and stood on their feet. A great and powerful army. Ezekiel spoke life and the Holy Spirit back into their bodies a literal and symbolic representation of the nation of Israel. And I think a really profound lesson to the Christian church today among us in the city that we know dearly and deeply love. God can do anything, Northridge. But instead, he commanded the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy over the dry bones, to call them to life. We are God's prophets and missionaries in our own time. To our own people in our life, desperate for life and hope that we know that only God can provide. I think that Ezekiel lived a truly ordinary to extraordinary life. He was just the son of a priest, nine years old, exiled from his home to a far-off place to live among the secular Babylonian empire. Yet at age 13, he was called to prophecy, to prophesy to his own people to speak the word of the Lord to them. I think as we look at the state of the church in America, the state of Christianity in Dane County, right where we live, and the great divide in many places between those who have and those who don't have, right here in our midst, I think the lessons from the book of Ezekiel and his life provide us with two commands, to stand up and to speak life. The first one this morning is to stand up. 
Friedrich Nietzsche believed that equality, do you remember, was a uniquely Christian ideal. Though Nietzsche pr promoted this in antithesis to his own belief about the state of humanity, that we would only be achieved in a world where some people had and some people didn't, I think that he was absolutely right about Christian equality. Our profound hope as followers of Jesus is in the promise of salvation, but also in the already and not yet kingdom that the world around us, I think, so desperately needs to hear. The culture that we live in here in Dane County, County promises progress. Yet we know in many cases in the race equity report and maybe some cases that you've experienced in your life that progress for some comes at the expense of others. Right here in Dane County, we celebrate progress and we wear it as a badge on our sleeve sometimes, yet we know that the people of color around us wonder when they will experience what it's like to live in the best place to live. In Jeremiah 6.14, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, as he is in the book of Ezekiel, to his people, to God's people, about all the places that they're looking for hope and for promise instead of God. You see, the people, when we're far from God and living amongst people that are not otherwise Christian, we can easily fall into the trap of looking for progress and looking for hope in a lot of other places other than what God has promised us. And so when God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 6, verse 14, God says, they, that's the promises of the world, of secular culture, offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give, the other promises give, the assurances of peace when there is no peace. As followers of Jesus, as Christ followers, we have to stand up and proclaim the promise of peace that we know is true. But remember what God said to the prophet Ezekiel, the people around him that he was going to speak the messages to are stubborn and hard-hearted sometimes. They might not listen. Yet, when we speak God's truth and God's promise to things in our life, it says in the book of Ezekiel, and I believe is true, that people will know that there's a prophet and a missionary among them. We have to stand up for this great Christian hope, this profound and unique hope that we have in Jesus. In the kingdom of hope, salvation, equality, that we know is on offer today. The prophet Ezekiel tells us, if the scroll tastes sweet as honey, then we should prophesy the word of the Lord. I think that in addition to taking a proverbial stand, to standing up and believing that what we have in Jesus is true, we also have to move. You see, Yahweh called Ezekiel to prophecy, but then he actually sent them to people. He sent him to people. That involved seeing the vision and going to speak the word of the Lord to people. You see, it's great that we're here today in worship and community and fellowship. What happens here on Sunday morning is incredibly important. But we're not called just to eat the scroll. I think the enemy would be delighted 
if we only tasted the honey, but it didn't move us towards an actual action. If we only sat here on Sunday morning and consumed the word, but it didn't compel us to do anything. I think one of the ways, the applicable ways that we can do this as a church is to serve. We can serve in the community and a lot of the service providers that we work and live amongst here in Wanakee. We can serve here at the church either on Sunday morning or in a variety of ways throughout the week. If you haven't yet found your sweet spot, a place that you enjoy and find life in serving, I would love to talk to you and help you figure out what that might look like. I mentioned earlier on our Connect card, so you sat down on this today. If you are curious about finding more about what you can do to actually take action towards service and about speaking the word of the Lord to other people, I would love a chance to speak with you and to pray about that and to figure out what the thing might be that you are called to be a missionary too. So if you want to fill this out, you don't have to find a box for this. It's unique, this message today. So you can just write your name and a way to contact you and write serve or Ezekiel or please contact me or literally something that we know to reach out to you. We'd love a chance to do that. Now the second bit of action I think the prophet Ezekiel's story calls us towards this morning is to speak life. The phrase post-Christian that was coined by Bonhoeffer is extremely relevant to today's day and age. We saw this in the Barna study about Madison, and it's only getting worse. You see, we often throw around words like, about Dane County, like dark and lost and secular and graveyard. I think we shouldn't let these words become curses over people and over a place. Just as the prophet Ezekiel spoke life into the dry bones, we should speak life into everyone who we encounter, to the dead and dying state of Christianity and the world that we live in amongst us. In another prophetic work in the Old Testament, the prophet, the prophet Habakkuk, that's a tongue twister, prayed for God's fame and deeds to once again be known. I think we should join the prophet in this prayer. Let's, by our words and our actions, make, it, make God famous again. If you missed last week or you haven't seen Northridge News or social media or heard from somebody else, you found out last week that my wife, Leah, and I are called and stepping out over the next year or so to plant a new Wesleyan church in the city of Madison. Now, there are some information cards. I'm going to hold this up too. There's a card that looks like this. You can find it at the end of the connection point table if you want to find out more information. There's a lot of things going on. There's an information session coming up on June 20th. And on the back, you'll find out that we are seeking after 500 prayer partners to help us to start this new work. So I encourage you, if you'd like to find out more about this, to get in contact with us to grab a card before you leave today. Now, as we fully transition and step out to this new work that God is calling us towards in Madison, we are, as people, and hope that you'll join us to come against the lies like dark and lost and secular and graveyard about this place that we live. You see, we know that God is calling us to breathe life into a place that many think 
is dead, dark, and lost. We are believing in this new work and as a church here at Northridge that God is going to bring the dry bones to life again. Northridge, we could very easily believe the lie that God is dead. That the church is some hopeless remnant of an archaic belief that Christianity is not relevant anymore, that we can find better hope and better promise in so many things that secular culture has to offer to us. And I think that we're called to not believe this lie. That we are called as a people, as Christ followers who have eaten the scroll, tasted it to be good and sweet like honey, we're called to speak life into the dry bones of our life. You see, I believe this morning as we close that God wants to resurrect what is dead and dying among us. He wants to breathe to life the spiritual journey of your neighbor who is far from God. He wants to resurrect the relationship in your family that you've lost and considered to be gone. He wants to bring his people back to the church again. He wants to call us back from exile, away from the church, into places just like this on Sunday morning, to worship in worship and indeed that the Lord's word is good and true and powerful and real. And it is our only true and profound hope in this earth. So let us, as we step out this morning, speak the prophet Ezekiel's words in everything that we do. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a place of profound hope in our existence. Lord, you are not surprised by the state of the church. You're not surprised by the state of culture that we live in as your followers, Lord. And I know, Lord, we believe that you could do a mighty and amazing work in our time. But I think, Lord, that we learned this morning from the prophet Ezekiel's extraordinary life that you are calling us as missionaries to our own people. Lord, to our families, to our neighbors, to the people that we work with, to everyone in our life, Lord, that is far from you, that believes the lie that you are not relevant anymore. And so, Lord, as we look out over the valley of dry bones, when we walk out of this place, Lord, help us not to see it as a place of death, but instead a place of hope. Use us, Lord, to speak words of life, of profound hope in Jesus to the world among us. Help us to be your missionaries, your prophets. Lord, help us to remember that what you have spoken to us, that the hope of salvation and the hope of eternity inside of us is sweet. 
and help us to have the encouragement and the strength to speak this life into the world around us. Lord, we are your vessels. Let us speak your words to those who we encounter. We believe a resurrection of this place and we're believing you for it. Lord, help us to make that a reality. So as we step out today into our places, go with us, Lord. Give us your eyes, your message, and your hope. Thank you for calling us out. Thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do and to everybody that we come into contact with, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this morning and let us step out of here with a, with a pep in our step and a unique message that so many need to hear. And so, Lord, send us out of this place with your energy, with your calling, with your hope, and with your words. God, we thank you for this morning, for the church that you are building here at Northridge. May it be a blessing to us and to those who we meet. We love you, Lord. We thank you, and we pray all of these things in your Son, Jesus' most powerful name. Amen. Would you please?